0: Well, here's a question for you. How many of you like surprises? Anybody like surprises? All right, two of you. Um, that's good. Man, that went over well. How many of you, let me ask it this way, don't like surprises? Anybody? Yeah, I don't. It's not so much that I, I don't like surprises as much as I'm kind of hard, hard to surprise. Um, I think my wife has given up trying, you know, because um, I always manage to sniff it out before it happens, you know. Um, you've got an anniversary or a birthday coming up, so you, your antenna is already kind of up. You're kind of expecting something. And uh, there have been a couple times that... And she she has uh, surprised me uh, once. Uh, we're pregnant. Um, no, that was not it. Um, not now, back in the day. That was a genuine surprise. Um, hey, Chloe, thanks, you know. Um, but some people really like surprises. Some people don't. You know, if you... Um, some of you, like, just like you have control issues, you know, you want to be prepared. So, like, if you're tearing up your floor, you want to know if your Aunt Gertrude is coming to spend a week, you know, before you tear up your floor. You know, if you, um, and surprises are that. They're not things that you necessarily anticipate. If I, if I asked you what, what you would do if there was a knock on your door tonight at 8 o'clock and you go to the door and Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and Bernie Sanders are there, what would you do? Uh, some of you would move. Um, you know, or feel like you're the victim of a really cruel joke. But you have to wonder, what would what would what would you do in in, in this circumstance, or that circumstance? There are such a thing as good surprises and um, bad surprises. If Publishers Clearinghouse sends you a check this week, that's a good surprise. But if you find out that you have a water leak, and the way that you find out. If you get your water bill and it's five times higher than it's ever been, that's not a good surprise. That's a bad surprise. There's all kinds of surprises. Life is full of them, whether it's water leaks or unexpected guests. In the same sense, as we get into kind of understanding all of the details surrounding the Christmas story, there is surprise everywhere. Today we talk about um, the arrival of the wise men. That was, I think, An unanticipated surprise. You have three uh, people of influence that show up on Mary and Joseph's doorstep. Um, Mary's pregnancy. That pretty much kind of takes the cake for a surprise. I mean, she herself was the most surprise of all. Um, Joseph, when he heard that Mary was pregnant, uh, not a good surprise at first. He thought their relationship was done. God coming to earth in the flesh. That's a big surprise. What a glorious surprise. And so today we're going to look at the way people react to the surprise of Christ. We're going to look at three specific uh, kind of personalities. uh, The wise men, King Herod, and then just kind of the religious establishment in Jesus' day and age. And I wonder if perhaps you see yourself in one of these three vignettes that we look at. We'll be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, a very small section, but a very beloved section. And we begin by looking at verses 1 and 2 and seeing the intentional, very intentional, deliberate, intentional, but very much misunderstood magi, the wise men. Look at what God's word says in verses 1 and 2. The verse starts kind of important. After. Not during, not while, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod. Wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw, past tense, his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now part of the fun part of this sermon is um, kind of correcting some of the popular myths that are out there. I want you to note, first and foremost, not to destroy your nativity scene. Though I will, I will tell you, um, have you ever been to like a gift exchange where, you know, you're getting rid of stuff? It's a great way for us to clean house whenever we have one of those. We find all kinds of fun stuff in our attic that we don't need anymore. And so, hey, you might, you might appreciate it. So we go to, a. this is at, this is at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary with faculty, New Testament professors, um, theology professors. There's about 40 people sitting around in a circle, and someone picks my gift, to which my wife elbows me and goes, man, that looks like our wise men. It is our wise men. (laughs) And so she didn't even know we gave our wise men away, because they weren't at the Nativity. Do you see what verse 1 says? After, After Jesus was born, they showed up in Jerusalem. So chronologically, there's a lot of things that we believe about the nativity that are just misunderstood. And the truth is, when it comes to the wise men, I can tell you more about who they weren't than I can tell you about who they were. What does the Bible say? We just read verses 1 and 2. How many wise men were there? What's it say? It says there were wise men. It doesn't give you a number. Why do we think that there were three? Because they brought three gifts. Now, the truth is, when the wise men showed up in Jerusalem, it created quite a stir. It's likely, because listen, you would do this, if you had a truckload of money, would you go on a thousand mile foot trip by yourself? Oh, heck no. I'm getting the National Guard and Special Forces and, you know, Green Berets, because I don't, I don't carry cash. I don't like to carry cash. Um, I'm just, I feel like a target. They likely traveled with armed soldiers. And uh, if these are people of influence, which they were, there were probably a bunch of them which helped to create some stir in Jerusalem. They created a stir because they show up going, hey, where's the, where's the king who's been born? Not the king who will be an usurper, not the king who will establish a coup d'etat, but where's the one who's been born king? He has a right to it. There's a, a, a lineage here. So we don't know how many there were. What were their names? What's the Bible say their names were? Baltashar, Melchior. No, it was Tertullian in uh, 300 AD, and we don't know if if those names were like Mike, Joe, and Andy, and he just kind of picked them. We have no historical evidence for what their names were. Um, How did they get there? They likely traveled over 1,000 miles to to find Christ. How did they get there? Well, what's your nativity scene tell you? They rode camels. Well, they could have rode horses, donkeys. They could have walked. We don't really know. So there's all kinds of issues related to this that are just kind of crazy. Um, we sing that song, We three kings of Orient are. Where do we get the idea that they're kings? Maybe from the gifts that they give. I mean, they're people who are wealthy. When we talk about the Magi, there's a lot of things that we don't understand. We don't know if they're Persians, if they're Babylonians, if they're from somewhere in Assyria. <clears throat> but we do know that they were wise men. Wise men were a really strange group of people they were political, uh, they were advisors to kings, uh, they were religious, so they would, um, th- they did some things that were kind of kind of odd, and you'll understand this by kind of looking at the etymology of words. Uh, they did astrology. Now, the word astrology joins two words together, or uh, astronomy. They did astronomy. You have astro meaning stars, nomos meaning law, the law of the stars. How do the stars move? So, you know, here's Jupiter, and here's saturn here's venus here's all these planets here's how they move astrology astronomy is the study of the stars astrology astro logos stars word the word of the stars the meaning of the stars is when you turn to the cartoons in your um newspaper and you have all those um things that tell you today will be a most fortuitous day for you you know um you're gonna meet someone t- tall dark and handsome it is trying to take what the law of the stars and give a meaning. They would blend together astronomy, which is good, and astrology, which is crack science. And they blended those together, but they would interpret the meaning of things. And so they would be the guys that if something happens, um, the king would call his advisors, and they would kind of try to read the tea leaves at the bottom of the pot to explain exactly what was going on. So they were religious, they were political, They were very prominent, and they were powerful. Uh, A lot of weird things about the Magi, they were monotheistic, they believed in one God, they had a sacrificial system that was very close to what God had given Moses, but they also dabbled in the occult. And so the word Magi is where we get the word for magic or magician. Some things really good about them, and in some ways maybe very close to uh, Judeo-Christian theology, but then dabbled in the occult. Why in the world would people like this who are pagans be interested in Jesus being born? I mean, obviously, we know what got their attention. That star got their attention. (coughs) But I think there's more to it. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Let me read this Old Testament passage to you, just three verses, and, and see if it sounds maybe a little bit like what the wise men were experiencing around the birth of Christ. Isaiah 61 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness covers the earth, and total darkness covers the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you, and His glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your radiance. Boy, that sounds exactly like what is happening in Matthew chapter 2. There is a light that shows, and, and, and here specifically, it's called a star. Uh, it's probably not a star at all. It's something supernatural. Stars don't appear and then disappear, and it's very clear when they leave Herod to go to the kid, the star reappears. Stars don't do that. Stars, like if you want to try to get to your, your, your best friend's house, why don't you just follow the star that is like shining directly above it? A star is not gonna help you find directions if this thing that is shining in the star for which we have no better, uh, shining in the sky, for which we have no better name for it than a star actually leads them to the home where Jesus is living. That's not a star. That's something else. For it to actually give particular, meticulous, specific guidance, it would have to be no more than a mile above the location where it's located. It just wouldn't make sense. And so there is something that is happening and it sounds exactly like what has happened here In Isaiah, this prophecy, we're told that a light would rise that it would draw people from the nations and that kings, rulers, leaders from far away would come. And he said, then you go, all right, hold on. These magi, they're into astrology, they're into astronomy. So yeah, maybe they like the star. Why would you say that Isaiah 60 might have influenced them looking for Jesus? Well, it goes back to just a really... uh, Maybe, perhaps, a tenuous connection that I'm going to make. But it goes back to, you know, we talk about the, uh, this season the most famous reindeer of all. Let's talk for a second about the most famous magi of all. Do you know who the most famous magi is? Look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 48. Listen to what the scriptures say. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. And the king made Daniel ruler over the entire province of Babylon. And listen to this, chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel was a Christian, or a a, a believer, I can't call him a Christian, he was a Jewish follower of Yahweh, Magi. You know that Daniel got thrown in the lion's den because he was unwilling to waver in his conviction of praying to the one true God. He was well known for his doctrinal Convictions and his belief in Yahweh. How could Daniel be put into a position of leadership and actually be assumed to not speak forward about the Christ that he saw coming? And so I think that Daniel exercised some influence over this uh, college of wise guys that here hundreds of years later have heard some vague prophecy from Isaiah and have seen some anomalous light in the sky that has drawn them to Christ. They get to Jerusalem, and it says they create a stir because it says they were saying. That's a present active participle. It doesn't mean that they only asked once. They asked everyone. They assumed that everyone in Jerusalem would be just as interested about this star and about this one who is to be born king of the Jews, and they assume everyone's going to know. And so there's this hubbub that is, circulating about these wise guys who have shown up to find this born king. They didn't express any doubt. They didn't, say, they didn't inquire if he had been born. They, wa- they knew that he had been born and they wanted to know where he was. They state their intentions very clearly. We've come from the east. We saw a star. We've traveled a bunch. We are here to worship him. You see in this first group of people a very intentional and deliberate process finding a way to get to Jesus, even though they're pagans. Even though they're pagans. And the same happens today. Would you, um, would you rather be around a bunch of pagans or a bunch of Christians? Sometimes I prefer pagans because they know how much they need Jesus. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we become self-righteous. And boy, that's a terrible thing to be. Religious, without Jesus. Sometimes God is in the process of intentionally pulling people to Him who don't even really know what they're looking for. And the same is true today. We move on to the second uh, second person. And in verses 3 and 4 and 7 through 8, we see the intimidated and murderous magistrate. We're talking, of course, about King Herod. Listen to what the scriptures say. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and he asked them, where would the Messiah be born? So the wise men ask, where is he born, who is king of the Jews? Herod adds something else to it. He asks the religious leader, where is the Messiah to be born? He knew something about this. It continues on in verses 7 through 8. He consults with the religious rulers after that. It says, Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them what's the exact time that that star appeared and then he sent them to bethlehem which they didn't know where to go the star got them to jerusalem but the scripture got them to bethlehem sent them to bethlehem and he said go and search carefully for the child and when you find him report back to me so that i too can go and worship Now, we can understand a little bit why Herod was really disturbed when he heard that there was one who was born king. It would be an usurper to Herod's rule. It's an affront to him. Herod is affected with a most incredible self-centeredness. As a matter of fact, when it says that all Jerusalem was troubled with him, it was not because Herod was a really popular ruler. They were troubled because Herod was troubled. And if he was troubled... He was going to make trouble for everyone else herod you may not know this had a reputation for being particularly cruel he had a cruel past he had a cruel past he would do whatever he could to control the power that he had been given if you look up the word control issues in your dictionary there'll be a picture of herod right there right next to the picture of you for gullible and so um, you can check that out um, It is, uh, this is not a debatable fact, this is secular history that affirms this, that Herod murdered most of his family because he viewed them as a threat to his kingship. So he murdered his wife, his brother-in-law, his grandfather-in-law, and two of his sons because they might prove to be a threat to his legacy and his longevity in his office. Herod didn't live but perhaps another year beyond Christ's birth. He was, he was older, and he was already infected with uh, probably several diseases. And so within about a year or two of Christ's birth, Herod died, and um, he knew that when he died that no one would mourn for him. He was a very gifted administrator, and in some ways he was very generous, but he was very cruel. He did not pick his enemies out very carefully. So you'll know... Because of Jesus' birth, he wants to kill Jesus. So who's he kill, trying to get to Jesus? An entire town of boys that are under two years old. He painted with a really broad brush stroke. So be careful of not just getting on Herod's bad side, but looking anything like someone who does, because you might get the axe as well as anyone else. So he knew that when he died, no one would mourn for him, so he gave his soldiers to uh, instructions to arrest. Many of the prominent citizens of Jerusalem with the instruction upon news of his death that those prominent citizens were to be killed as well, executed, so that Jerusalem would be in mourning at the time of his death. Terrible thing. A terrible thing. But yet he knew that if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is King, then Herod's not. If Jesus is the ruler, then what Herod thought of as his own sovereignty is over. Now I love, I love this. This is just one of those ways that the scripture is so inspired by the spirit and put together by humans that it's just one of these intriguing things that you see. Before the wise men make it to Jesus and bow before him and present their gifts. Before that, Herod is always referred to in Matthew as King Herod. King Herod. Anytime he's introduced, it's King Herod, it's King Herod, it's King Herod. However... After the Magi come, and they bow before the Christ child, and they present their gifts, from that point forward, Matthew always refers to Herod as Herod. Literally, Matthew has dethroned Herod. The thing that he feared the most, Matthew does. He says, you're not king anymore. You might be an earthly king, but you are not the king. That baby is the king. Uh, It's a fascinating thing to see. You see it in Matthew, uh, the first couple of chapters of Matthew. So Herod is is old. He's a little bit off his rocker. He's a little crazy about control issues. He's weak, yet when he hears that this king has been born, look at what he does. It says that he... um, summons all of his, uh, his religious leaders. He assembles them together. He asks them a question. He summons the wise men secretly. He sends them to Bethlehem. He perceives that they've, they've, they've not come back to tell him. He gets enraged, and then he orders for children to be executed. Oh, listen, this old man, you threaten his power, he'll find old man strength to rattle the saber a little bit more. Not only did he have a cruel past, But we see in verses 7 and 8 that Herod was a flatterer and a deceiver. He was a flatterer and a deceiver. When he called the wise men secretly, I mean, you all know this. What is somebody's favorite subject? Themselves. So the magi combine together astrology and astronomy. So, you know, Herod wants to have this secret meeting with them. And what does he do? He asks them about their hobby. He goes... Did that star first appear? Tell me about this. I don't know about these things. Man, a, astronomy, that sounds really cool. Why don't you tell me a little bit about this? And by the way, here's a specific question for you How long has that star been shining? He's flattering them. He's feigning interest in their hobby because there's something he wants to get out of it. What's he want to get out of it? Is he really interested in the law of the stars? No, he wants to know. I mean, here's the question Why did Herod decide to slaughter every male child under two? He ascertained from the length that the star was shining that the, 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 the child couldn't be more than two. And see, he is deceptive enough. He's not going to go, all right, now I'm the king and I have the power of life and death. Tell me, how, how old do you think this kid is? He didn't ask that question. He, he feigns interest. He flatters him. Tell me about this, this science that you're involved in. How, how, how long has this star been shining? And then he feigns kindness. He deceives him. He says, you know what? Let me, let me commission you guys here. Maybe I'll even give you some provisions. You go. You find him and then come back so I can worship him too. He fakes kindness, but what does he intend? He intends killing. He pretends like he's going to be kind to the child, but all along we know that his intention is to murder him. And friends, the same is true today. Maybe not literally because Christ has ascended, but there are people today who would put the knife in Christ's heart if he was physically present. It happens. And this is someone who... Knows because he asks, Hey, what does the scripture say about the Messiah where he would be born? He knows, he just is so interested in what he wants for himself and the power that he has gotten that he is intending murder. In verses five and six, we th- see the third group of people. I call them the indifferent and disobedient religious establishment. You have intentional magi and intimidated king, and you have an indifferent. Religious establishment. Look at verses 5 and 6. All right, I'll go back to verse 4. So Herod assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this was, is what was written by the prophet Micah. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people, Israel. And here's what I want you to get from this. Herod has... A murderous intent, and he needs to figure out how exactly, w- where, where do I look? Do I, I search over the entire kingdom? Can you narrow it down at all for me? So he assembles all the chief priests and the scribes together, and he asks them a question. Where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Now here's what you don't hear. Um, they didn't know. Hey, can we get back to you later on that, Herod? Let's consult the archives. Let's go to the universities. Let's do a deep and, and, and serious search. No, they, they had a ready answer. He asked the question, they're like, well, duh, it's Bethlehem, bro. They had a ready answer, and yet they didn't budge. They didn't move. They didn't do a cotton-picking thing. And so here is this promise that is coming forth fulfilled and the jews to whom god has given the prophecy and given his word are so unconcerned about the advent of jesus that they're not willing to walk 10 kilometers six miles from jerusalem to bethlehem to see if by chance maybe this promise has come true Unbelievable. They don't budge. The promise of prophecy fulfilled is not enough to get them moving. Now, I'll be honest with you. I think both within the church and outside of the church, this is a far more common problem than murderous intent. Although I will make really clear to you, (laughs) you can't ride the fence. When, When the magi show up, they ask, where, where, is the one who is born the king of the Jews born. They ask specifically the phrase, king of the Jews. In Matthew, the first time that phrase appears is on the lips of the wise men. That phrase appears on the lips of the religious leaders towards the end of Matthew, but it's when they're begging Pilate to crucify him. So the religious leaders start very indifferent. We don't care. We're not going to get out of our lazy boy. We're not going to stop... You know, watching Game of Thrones, we don't care. We're just going to sit here. We don't care to go see whether this prophecy has become true. But where does their indifference lead them? To the exact same place that it led Herod. Just Herod was honest with himself that he didn't want a sovereign king over him. The Jews just kind of pretended indifference. But they ended up being murderers as well. Let me just give you guys a warning too. Uh, For those of you that are really proud of your perfect attendance pin for Sunday school or for worship knowledge of the word doesn't save you these guys had it straight hey you know you could ask them any bible trivia pursuit question they got herod's like man i'm i'm really ticked off y'all better tell me where's the messiah gonna be born they go bethlehem and you know what there's there's multiple bethlehems around so let me make it really clear: bethlehem of judea not bethlehem of you know ephraim not bethlehem in, in benjamin's territory bethlehem of judea knowledge of scripture Is really only enough to condemn. It is the grace of God in Christ, faith in Him that saves, not our knowledge of Scripture. The passage concludes in verses 9 through 12 by talking about what happens to the wise men after they leave Jerusalem. And in this, verses 9 through 12, we see the international call, the international call of our global God. Listen to what the Scriptures say. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And there it was, you can insert the word again, there it was again, the star. They had seated past tense, in the east, and it led them until it came, and it stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. You know, overjoyed beyond measure means they don't have enough words to describe how excited they were to know that they were getting closer. Entering the house, not the stable, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts gold, frankincense and Martin, being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. They returned to their own country by another route. You know You want to know what's so ironic about this? Because again, here are Gentiles diligently seeking Christ and the Jews to whom He came. First and foremost, they're not searching at all. They don't care. You want to know another huge irony in this? Is when the wise men go to their secret meeting with Herod, Herod kind of commissions them to go to Bethlehem. Herod thinks that he is sending them. But the truth is that God himself is drawing them. It's not Herod who put the star in the sky that got their interest piqued in the first place. It was God by his sovereign goodness who in his kindness dangled the carrot of the star to get them, not all the way to the journey, but to Jerusalem. And what I love here is it was nature that God used to get them to Jerusalem. And it was Scripture, Micah, the scribes, who said the town where it was, what nature began, Scripture completed. God said, let me get your interest Let's let's kind of go you like the stars so let me put let me put something shiny in the sky that gets them moving but the light of nature and man is never enough to save them we need direct revelation from God in his word and in his son to bring us to a saving knowledge of who God is so they meet with the king they start on their journey again and it seems from the way the language is uh, worded that the star reappears the star got them moving but it was not perpetual in its shining. It says they're overjoyed, impossible to express in words, and it says in a weird way that the star rested over their house. Is there a star that rests over your house? Not really. There is something shining and brilliant and radiant, but not an astro- astronomical phenomenon that we would call a star today. God is putting his spotlight on the place to get them where they want to go. And it says they arrive. They come into a house, not a barn. And it is likely that they arrive after Jesus is a few months old. Now, how do we know that? This is a bit of conjecture, okay? So follow along with me here for a second. Uh, The wise men come and they bring gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In the Jewish law, when you gave birth to a child, there's an issue of blood, which according to Old Testament law means there is ritual impurity that needs to be atoned for so at the 40-day mark a little bit over a month luke 2 22 through 24 says that mary uh, and ostensibly joseph and jesus traveled to jerusalem to pay their dues here's what the scriptures say when the days of their purification according to the law of moses were finished they brought jesus up to jerusalem to present him to the lord just as it is written in the law of the lord every firstborn male will be dedicated to the lord and secondly to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now here's where kind of the shoe drops. The law makes provision for all kinds of sacrifices, but specifically the offering of two turtle doves or two young pigeons is the offering required of a peasant, someone who is poor. And I know, I, I, I just know, that if Mary and Joseph had been the recipient of gold and frankincense and myrrh, their offering would not have been two pigeons and a turtle dove. There would have been some gold coins clinking in the coffers of the temple. And so I don't think that there's any way that the wise men could have have been there before this. After all, we are told in verse 1, after Jesus was born, they showed up in Jerusalem. What's the reaction when a bunch of pagans meet Christ? They don't leave the same way that they came. It says that they find him. And maybe Joseph's at work whenever they show up because Joseph's not mentioned specifically, but they meet Mary and they meet the child and it says specifically that they, ma- they worship the child, not mom. They worship Christ. And what I find so interesting is that these pagan men had been desired and sought by the Heavenly Father. And when they came, they were transformed. They had been men who in their previous life, had worshipped the stars. But at the end of the story, they worshipped the sun. Not the S-U-N. The S-O-N. Whatever they had worshipped before, paled in comparison to the glory of God in the flesh. Many see significance in the gifts that they gave. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. I, I don't know that this is true, but it is custom and it is tradition. That gold was the appropriate gift for royalty because it conveyed riches. That frankincense in some ways symbolizes Jesus' divinity because frankincense was an essential ingredient to the incense that floated up to God to accompany the sacrifices of His people. Gold for royalty, frankincense for divinity, and myrrh to demonstrate Christ's mortality, that He came to offer His life as atonement for the sins of the world. Myrrh, which was offered to Christ as he died on the cross, handed to him on a reed with vinegar, myrrh, which Nicodemus brings to the tomb for the process of embalming Jesus' body because it was a natural uh, occurring uh, element that was used for the embalming process. So perhaps these wise men bring gifts that are far deeper in their significance than even they could have known to demonstrate his royalty and his divinity, and his mortality. The end result of this story is exactly what they stated at the beginning. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. What I love about their worship is their worship included three essential components. They were glad. The closer they got, the gladder they got. Remember the star reappeared? And it says they were overjoyed that it appeared again, and they were getting closer. It included submission. Proud people don't bow. And they bowed before the king and they offered him gifts. Gladness, submission, and giving. Do those things mark your worship this morning? Or are you more of a religious connoisseur here to just taste a little bit of this and a little bit of that? Or are you all in? You see, religious connoisseurs aren't really glad. They just are glad that they've gotten their obligation done. They certainly don't submit and they're not going to give their money, and they're certainly not going to give their life. When it comes to your worship this morning, is your worship marked by gladness and giving and submission? Can that be said of us? The truth is you only have two options before you this this morning, and it's either submission or it's self-centeredness. Don't don't think that there's some pious thing in the middle. It is either submission to Christ or self-centeredness. Either you have submitted your life to Christ as your king, or you're selfishly living life with you as your king. If you find yourself in that latter category, (coughs) please note that whatever indifference you have to Christ this morning will lead you to the same place that that led the Jews. Oh yeah, it's indifference now, but it turns into murder lately. You will either fight to destroy Christ like Herod, or you will passively ignore him like the religious leaders. But in our story this morning, there's only one group out of those three, out of the Magi, Herod and the Jews. There's only one that finds true and lasting joy. And it was that group of men who were transformed from worshiping the stars to learning what it means to worship the sun. And I conclude with this. The Magi, I think, learned an important lesson. That just as that star led them to Christ, so from this point forward, their job was to do what the star did, to point people to the Lord. And I conclude with this passage from the lips of Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, by which he said this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Therefore, let Your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You may not be a star in the same way that the star in our passage wasn't really a star. It was a light leading to God. And God calls us today who worship Him in spirit and truth to glorify Christ in all things and by all means to point others to the Christ through whom we have forgiveness of sins. Pray with me, please. Father, we pray that you help us this morning to have a desire to point people to Christ. Father, may we be like John the Baptist and say, I'm not the light. I'm, I'm just a candle kind of pointing to the source of where that light comes from. Father, may we find joy in reflecting your character May we not be indifferent or malignant. May we be intentional. May we be submissive. May we find our deepest joy in living most fully for you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.